In this episode, council member Angela Jones and I talk to Emily Singler, a mum, vet, mentor and author of the new book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team. We discuss how the equine profession can be better at helping ourselves and each other prepare for and navigate pregnancy and parenting during our careers. to another Beaver Pod Life episode and today we are welcoming Emily Singler with us who is an author, a mum, a veterinarian and a mentor and has written a book that we're going to talk about today and she's come to talk to me and Angela Jones, our council member. Um, welcome both of you. Thank Hi. you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so I would like to put it to you, uh, Emily, how how did you come about writing this book and tell us a bit about the story behind it? Sure. Um, so I um, always knew I wanted to have kids, um, but when I found out I was pregnant for the first time, you know, with my first child, I was only about two or three months out of vet school. So I had just started my first job and just felt completely unprepared um, and terrified, excited, but terrified. And not only did I feel completely unprepared, but I had trouble finding um, reliable sources of information and answers to my questions. Um, And just kind of someone else who had been through it before, who could tell me that everything was going to be okay. And I was experiencing all these, you know, obviously physical changes, but emotional changes, um, kind of call into question your whole life, you know, all that you can never prepare yourself for what it's going to be like to become a parent. Um, and it kind of makes you, or at least it made me kind of really kind of re-examine all of my choices and all the things I was doing and, um, trying to figure out if that was still what I wanted to be doing. And, um, not knowing if any of that was normal. Um, And so it was just, it was an exciting experience, but also kind of isolating. Um, Just kind of wondering if, if I was doing things right. And, um, you know, the anxiety that would come along with little things like x-ray exposure during pregnancy or not such a little thing being like attacked by a cat while I was pregnant, being stuck in the abdomen with a rabies vaccine needle while I was pregnant, all of these things, you know, not, not knowing what is, what does this mean for me? What can I safely do? Uh, What is it appropriate for me to ask for, from my employer, that kind of thing, all of that stuff. I was just completely in the dark about all of it. Um, And tried the best I could to find the information, but just kind of as I went along through my time as a parent and as a veterinarian, um, I just increasingly felt this pull to, to want to know more and to find some of the answers to these questions that, um, you know, my coworkers didn't know, my employers didn't know. A lot of times my healthcare providers didn't know. Um, so I eventually just decided I was going to go out there and try to find as much of it as I could and sort of package it in a way that would, um, that would have worked for me, you know, when I was going through it and that would hopefully help other veterinary professionals, you know, not just veterinarians, but 
technicians, receptionists, you know, all members of the team, um, and the people that they work with and that employ them so that hopefully we can not be in the dark about it anymore. Um, kind of take some of the stress out of that time. So that was what really motivated me. How easy was it to find the information that you, that you wanted and needed? Like, um, it's, I mean, depending on the subject, I mean, I found a lot, a lot of the information that I found was really old, you know, um, and a lot of it was not veterinary specific. Um, but I had to, I mean, I had to kind of sift through a lot of research articles. I bought a few books um, for some of the subjects that I just didn't feel as comfortable with. I um, I tried to talk to some experts and at least get them to to guide me in the right direction. I originally had this idea that I was going to like interview an expert for every subject. Like, I was going to interview an OBGYN and I was going to interview an infectious disease specialist and I was going to interview um, like a, a health physicist to talk about radiation and all these kinds of things. But what I found as I went along is that these experts who I was reaching out to, like nobody wanted to be on the record. <laughs> nobody mm-hmm. wanted, nobody wanted to, you know, have their name associated with, you know, this is okay for you to do. And, and this is not, and I, I don't know why, you know, I, I got a lot of reasons. I'm too busy. I don't know the answers to your questions. You know, um, there's nothing that I can tell you that you can't research on your own. I mean, I got, that was the kind of feedback that I got. And I thought, you know, I'm a smart person. I understand the research. I know how to do the research. So we're just going to go and, and see what it says. Um, so on some subjects, there was a ton of information and on others there, there wasn't. So we just kind of had to put together what there was. And I, I really wanted to be careful to not say, here's the information. This is what I think it means. And this is exactly what you should do. You know, I tried to just like with my own patients and my clients, I want to say, this is information. This is what we know. And now you take that and you decide kind of what you want to do with it. For some things, you know, it's clear, like certain medications, it's really not a good idea to certain drugs. You just really shouldn't handle if you can avoid it when you're pregnant, things like that. Um, but for other things, it's less clear, but it's more about just kind of having the information and then you kind of do what makes the most sense for you, or you have this information and then you can use it to have a discussion with your healthcare provider, with your employer, with your family, that kind of thing. So I'm hoping it'll be kind of like a springboard, kind of a, um, jumping off point for, for a lot of those conversations, um, but yeah, sometimes I would kind of start researching and I would kind of end up going down this rabbit hole of like, oh, well, I didn't even know about that. So now I have to find all these articles about that and research that. And sometimes I have to get to the point where I'd be like, okay, enough. I'm not writing like, <laughs> <laughs> like a scholarly research article. Like I think this is enough. And I think this is going to give people a starting point. I cannot cover every possible like fact or study on this subject. Um, I have to stop somewhere. So. Um, I think as vets, we can be a little bit obsessive about things, can't we? And you, you, like you said, you go down a rabbit hole. We can, hole, you just, we can. <laughs> I'm totally guilty of that. Um, and then, you tend to like leave. call yourself um, back. 
<laughs> yeah, totally. Go ahead. Parental leave <laughs> in the US is, is quite different from the UK, isn't it? I think your challenges are, are, are even greater than we have here. Can you tell us about what what's, what's standard in, in the US in terms of parental leave policies? Very little. (laughs) Very little is standard. And I think that's a big part of the problem. So I I almost it's sad, but I think what's standard is to not expect much, um, unfortunately. Um, And it's I mean, it's changing a little bit, but I definitely don't think veterinary medicine is at the forefront of that. Um, So we have, uh, you know, the only really law that we have at like a nationwide level is the Family Medical Leave Act. The FMLA is what we usually call it. And basically it says that certain employees can't be, they can't lose their job if they go on leave for certain conditions for a certain period of time. Um, So if you work for an employer that has more than 50 employees and you've worked there for a year and you've worked there basically full-time, you know, a certain number of hours and you have a qualifying need, like you've had a baby or your spouse has had a baby or you've adopted a child or you have a family member that's very sick and you need to care for them. Um, You know, it's situations like that. You can take up to 12 weeks um, of leave and your employer cannot terminate your job. That's, that's really all that we have. Um, it does not provide any pay. Um, and if you haven't worked for your job for a year, or if you work for an employer who has less than 50 employees, which most veterinary practices would fall under that, you, you don't qualify. Um, which means technically, <laughs> technically, you could lose your job. They could decide we have to hire someone else and your job's not going to be here you know, when, when you get back to leave. From leave. I find that most even smaller employers, though, at least have some understanding that it's the right thing to do to offer that, you know, the 12 weeks. Although I, I certainly have um, in, in speaking with other um, veterinarians and um, veterinary professionals who are parents who have gone on leave, I've, I've definitely heard stories where uh employers come back and said, no, 12 weeks is too long, or even eight weeks is too long. We need you back in six weeks because there's nobody. And I've spoken with, you know, solo, solo equine practitioners who've taken less than two weeks because there was no one else to, to cover their, their caseload. I didn't think I could even um, talk at two weeks. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I could string a sentence together. <laughs> Your yeah. body, your mind, your sleep. Um, I just it's yeah, it it's it's baffling that um that, that could could be the case. It's um there's still so much healing yeah. to be done as well. Yeah. Um yeah. That's- now I do I do want to recognize that some people feel even after a few weeks that they need to get out of the house. They need to do something, even just very, very part time. They need to have a little bit of interaction and start using that part of their brain, even for like mental health reasons. So for some people, you know, they find they even want to go back to work a little bit earlier. But I agree, you know, from a healing standpoint, I mean, I think even six weeks is just kind of the beginning of feeling sort of normal or slightly normal in, in your body 
again, mm-hmm. let alone adjusting to the sleep deprivation, all the hormonal changes, just maybe some, um, you know, perinatal mood disorders. I mean, there's so many changes that happen to you caring for you know a newborn who maybe only wants to sleep when you're holding them. <laughs> um, it, it can be so jarring to feel like you have to go back to work and then be responsible for you making life or death decisions and, you know, meeting the high demands and standards of your clients and not making mistakes and all of the pressure that just goes along with, you know, practicing in veterinary medicine to begin with. Yeah. It, I, it's a real problem, I think. Um, and how different is it for other similar professions in the U S like, so for human medicine practitioners or, Oh, definitely any other kind of medical pressure. Um, dentists yeah. So I think it's very similar. I, I think, um, with the exception that just in general, on the human side, there's more money. <laughs> Um, so you're going to be more likely to find an employer who's going to offer at least some paid, um, leave, um, which can make it easier to take a little bit more, um, or, or they may be more likely to be able to bring on another provider to cover the time, you know, like a locum, um, uh, practitioner to cover the time. So you feel, um, more comfortable taking the time that, that you need. Cause right now really in terms of getting pay for parental leave, it's pretty much up to um, the employer or, you know, certain employees who work for like a federal or state government get some kind of paid leave. Um, some States, I think there are like 14 States in the U S that will offer some paid leave um, through their state. So people who live in certain States, will we'll have more benefits. And then um, some, in some cases, we'll have access to short-term disability insurance, which we pay into. And then typically, that's what I've had for my last couple of pregnancies. I mean, they'll pay you like 60% of your salary up to a certain amount for only for the time you're considered disabled, which typically for a vaginal delivery is six weeks. Um, and usually there's a waiting period. Like I think for mine, it was a week. So for the first week you weren't eligible for anything. So I got like five weeks worth of partial pay. Um, and then the rest of it, I just had to kind of save up myself. Um, so that's a very common, common scenario, but it, it, I mean, I think in all industries in the U S it's very common for, um, particularly, you know, part-time or lower paid or hourly um, workers to feel like they can't afford to take hardly any maternity leave at all. Mm-hmm. You know, in a couple of weeks, they're back at work. We're quite lucky. They're afraid the- they're going to lose their job or they, they just can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah. You, Angela, would you like to so, just sort of summarize what it's like in the UK for comparison? I mean, people, people might know in our listener audience, but there's plenty that might not. So. Yes, it's quite it's quite variable in the UK, but I think um, compared to the US, I think we seem to have um, a, a slightly better time of it. So the, the there's a 
um, we have statutory maternity pay in the UK. So you get paid, mm-hmm. I think it's 90% of your, um, of your salary for the first six weeks. Um, and then after that, it's almost, um, I can't remember what the exact value is. Is it about 560 pounds a month? So you, you go down to like a statutory maternity pay after that. Now, some of our, um, some of our sort of corporates are becoming much more tuned in with maternity packages and are now some of them are offering really, you know, mm-hmm. really good maternity packages. In fact, we summarized them recently, didn't they? And there's a there's um some of them are offering, you know, um at least f- full pay for it, you know, up to I think the best one was about 12 weeks, wasn't it? it was, um and then you go down to 50%. And that so it means that um mothers in the UK would would generally stay off, and that's a mass generalization, but you're allowed to take. 12 um yeah 12 months off and still go back to your to your job mm-hmm. at the end of it um which is a, mm-hmm. a, a massive difference isn't it and and don't get me wrong just like you yeah. said i think that sorry there are um people that want to go back sooner or need to go back sooner um or, or feel like they miss the stimulation we have kit days so keeping in touch days and you mm-hmm. can do 10 of those when you're pregnant and be and be paid for them without losing your maternity pay. So um be at least you just give me 90% of your average weekly earnings before tax for the first six weeks. Um and then um 172 pounds a week for the next 33. So that's what you get. Um which we feel is 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 pretty low. But when you hear it from your side, it's actually quite sobering, <laughs> I think. Um, right. Well, I think it is true that we we think in the US we kind of hear oh other countries have paid leave and and we probably do form this idea that like you're getting pretty much your full pay all this time which is which is not true. Yeah. Right? It's no. it's significantly lower than than what you would be paid when you're taking that long of a leave. Yeah. Is yeah. that the case? Absolutely. Yeah, that's yeah. the case. Yeah. So it's um it's yeah actually below the they have like a living wage in the UK and it's significantly lower than the national uh-huh. living wage is so unless you have savings okay. or a partner that can support you um you're you'll mm-hmm. be you're, I don't think you could survive on it well not very not very well um right right without other other forms of support um whether it's government support partner support or savings um so in terms of planning for pregnancies and things what advice would you have because it's it's one of those things like you say when you're in your 20s you don't think about it you're trying really hard probably not to get pregnant well lots mm-hmm. of the time and then all of a sudden the switch goes and yeah. you think oh, <laughs> oh it's um it's time um what advice would you have in terms of those sort of people and not necessarily in their 20s could be in their 30s but when they do decide that having a family is important to them are there any steps that they can put in place to make that transition a bit more straightforward? Um, Yeah, I mean, I would say every case is so different. And a fair amount of the time we find out that we're going to be having a baby and maybe haven't had any time to do any of that planning. But um, I think having some, if you, if you are, if you do have the luxury of kind of planning ahead of time, you know, kind of looking at your finances, um, looking at your savings, you know, trying to work on that a little bit so that you can take, you know, the period of time that that you would like to have or that you think you would like to have for your leave. 
Um, in the U.S., I say if you have option, you know, access to short-term disability insurance through your workplace, you need to get on that before you're pregnant because if you start it after you're pregnant, there's a good chance the insurance will not cover you. Um, so it needs to be started ahead of time. Um, thinking about your support network, I think we all forget about how much help we need. Um, we just don't realize how much help we're going to need. So thinking about who you would ask for help um, when you first come home from the hospital. Is there someone who can bring you food? Is there someone who can get groceries for you? Is there someone who can come over and just help you around the house? Um, whether it's going to be family or friends or coworkers, um, this is just definitely not a time to try to kind of be a martyr and, and do it all yourself. We just need help. And I know it's just impossible to really kind of think about and understand before you go through it, but it's definitely a situation where where possible, you want to try to have a village, kind of a support network to help, um, help make that period of time a little bit easier. And of course, there's all the fun stuff. There's the strollers and the cribs and the clothes and decorating the nursery that the baby probably won't sleep in for a while and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, <laughs> but I think the really important things are just kind of having having kind of some safety and security. I mean, if you can have it financially, great. If you don't, you know, you'll be okay. You'll make it work. Um, but trying to have a support network, if, you know, mental health is something that is already on your radar, you know, kind of putting in place some, some self-care practices and, and getting in the habit of, you know, prioritizing yourself, setting some time, time aside for yourself, having someone that you feel safe talking to, making sure that you're, you know, if you're in a really toxic work environment or you're just not happy where you are, if there's some kind of change you want to make so that that's not an added stressor when you're taking care of a newborn, maybe that's something you want to think about. Every case is going to be so different, but just kind of um, taking stock of, of what you have, where you feel like things could be changed to kind of better support yourself because you're just, you're, you're going to need, um, you're going to need that. You're going to be happier if you have that. Um, and then just learning to kind of love yourself and be patient with yourself and have grace and know that so many things are going to come up that you never could have anticipated. And just understanding that you're doing much better than you think you are. <laughs> That's, I think that's the best kind of general advice I can give. That's um, really reassuring. Um, and is there anything you can think of from like a safety perspective that um, that we could, um, as equine vets specifically, adopt in order to keep ourselves more like safer when we're pregnant? You said about certain certain drugs and certain jobs that we do. Um, is there anything equine specific you can you can um, think to advise our, our listeners on really? Yeah, I don't know how it typically works in the UK, but I know in the in the US, a lot of times equine practitioners will will do their calls, you know, unassisted, without a technician, without a nurse, without an assistant with them. Um, and if it's the same way in the UK, you know, one of the um I think most valuable tips that I've received from other equine practitioners who are parents who work during their pregnancy 
is to have a technician, have an assistant, have a nurse come out on the calls with them, um, particularly calls where you know you're doing joint injections or taking radiographs and other um, procedures that could represent more of a safety risk um, because that allows you to potentially you know, step aside and still be directing things without putting your body in as much of harm's way. Uh, when I was re- researching for the radiation chapter of the book, we talk about some large animal and um, ambulatory um, adjustments that can be made to reduce the risk of radiation exposure. Things like using a cassette holder on a longer, like a pole, um, which I understand is not very commonly used, um, to kind of increase the distance between yourself and the beam, um, putting the uh, mobile radiation, um, the, the x-ray machine on, mounted on a pole so that no one's holding it, uh, because that also increases the distance, um, using blocks to um, position a foot when you're um, radiographing the foot so that no one's having to hold the leg, um, using sedation more, and, and having a technician, because then that's just another set of hands which can make things um, make things much safer. Um, so yeah, I do cover uh, all of that stuff in the book. And um, in terms of drugs, you know, the big thing that we think about is in, in equine medicine is, is the prostaglandins. Mm-hmm. Um, just really trying to avoid handling them. And if you do have to handle them, I mean, just double, triple, quadruple, um, take any safety measures that you can to avoid, you know, accidentally injecting yourself or even spilling the drugs on your hands because a lot of those drugs are very rapidly absorbed through the surface of the skin. Um, and that might be something that you that you ask your technician to do or that you even refer to another practitioner and say, you know, at this time, I'm not able to provide that service, but my colleague so-and-so can certainly take care of that for you and then I'll follow up on you know, the rest of the case. I think, I don't know if that's commonly practiced, but hopefully that's something we can all get comfortable doing if there's something that just doesn't feel safe. Yeah. I think we, in here in the UK, certainly we, we, um, we're quite accepting that people that are pregnant won't take x-rays at all. I'd say, would you agree? Mm-hmm. I think they, because we work in bigger practices. I think, yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe not. Certainly, certainly in my experience, at least it was, it was, an acceptable and expected option that you wouldn't be doing radiography anymore obviously you've got that period before you might be wanting to tell people where it becomes really difficult to know when and how you avoid doing them if you don't want people yet to know about the pregnancy and it's early on um and and again sort of handling drugs um you know that's we try and encourage people yeah to avoid if at all possible and again because we work in sort of there's much fewer lone workers i'd say in the uk probably than there are in parts of the states at least and um and so calling on colleagues sort of is is kind of more the norm, would you agree? But Angela, I know you, you reacted to my radiography comment. What would you? Um, yeah, I think <laughs> in smaller teams, sometimes it's expected of you to um, to do to to do the one well, not the right thing, but do the do the thing that they need you to do. Um, and um, I know that I wore um, a dosimeter that you could then plug into the laptop afterwards and check whether you got irradiated or not. But obviously, if you did, then <laughs> I didn't. But um, if you if you did have a reading on that, I was like, well, what do you do with that? 
then. And I think, um, I think like Emily said, being as safe as you possibly can be in, in the situation you're given and avoidance is obviously the safest, um, and doing whatever's comfortable. You know, some people aren't comfortable having a glass of wine when they're pregnant. Whereas I'm, you know, I was quite comfortable having us, having us more. And, and it's, it would do whatever makes you most comfortable. And if you're not comfortable x-raying, then just is a hard stop for you and just say, just say no. Um, but yeah, I think it's, I think in a, in a big practice, it's, um, it's probably a little bit easier to, to, to not do, not do certain things perhaps, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was sort of, it was not non-negotiable for me, but it was something that I was, um, it would have been difficult for me to not do. Um, and what do you think, Emily, you, you write a lot about, um, about what we can do now what do you think the future looks like for for working mums in um in the, what would you like it to look like one of the the biggest things that i would like to see happen for that will benefit working moms is for working dads <laughs> to really kind of join the conversation and sort of normalize them talking about what they need to be a good working parent, them talking about having more parental leave, them talking about leaving on time to pick up the kids. Um, And I include like all non birthing parents that don't identify as kind of the mom uh, in the, in their relationship, because we have so many cultural expectations that the woman, the mom is, has, has to bear all these burdens. They do the majority of the unpaid work in the home. They do, you know, all the child pickup, they take the longer leave, which they're certainly entitled to, but it creates this stigma that may not be verbalized, but, you know, other people look at women in some cases still and think, oh, well, they're going to get pregnant and they're going to have kids and then they're going to want to work part time and then they're not going to stay and they're not going to be as dedicated. And none of those things are true. But until we have, you know, all parents being willing to kind of take on that same um, sort of identity and say, hey, I need those things, too. You know, those are important to me too. So let's all bear it. Let's shift some of the burden off of moms always being the one to ask for those things and to need those things. And let's just, let's just assume that any person of, of, you know, the appropriate age could become a parent and let's take some of that stigma away from just women of childbearing age. Um, That's what I would like to see happen. And I think it's starting to happen, but very, very slowly. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for your time today and insight into um, into pregnancy and parenting. Emily's book, Pregnancy and Postpartum Considerations for the Veterinary Team, is out now and available on Amazon. Um, and we've just been chatting as well about making it available as an audiobook because um, I just don't find the time to read anymore. So watch this space. Um, so thank you so much for your time again, Emily, and I hope that our paths cross again very soon. Bye-bye.